is got the basic breakdown uh, of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is, you know, it's one of those books that can be dry on the surface when you get through it. It's a lot of like laws and the laws being given again. But let's talk about a little overview. It is Deuteronomy. It is the second giving of the law. Uh, it is Moses with the second generation. The first generation has died in the wilderness. And now that younger generation that they thought was going to be a prey and they thought would never come into the promised land is now about to embark on the promised land. And Moses is giving them the law and the laws of God for the second time. Uh, so some vital statistics. If you're taking notes, there are 34 chapters. There are 959 verses. There are 28,352 words. And again, the names of the books of the Bible are very telling and very important. It is the fifth book of Moses. It is the last book of the law or the Pentateuch, pent meaning five. Uh, We read the book of Genesis and studied that. That was the book of beginnings. Amen. That's where God started. Then we read the book and studied the book of Exodus, which was the book of the exit from Egypt because God created something and ended up dead in a coffin in Egypt and God had to deliver it in the book of Exodus. And then Leviticus was that book of the priesthood. Now that you've been saved by the blood, amen, you have this access and this ministry like the Levites had to approach unto God. And then the book of Numbers was that book of numbering for war. Do you see the, do you see the progression? Do you see the growth here? God starts something, sin ruins it. God delivers something, he gives you access, he makes you into a soldier, and then guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to mess up. And then you need a second chance, a second giving, a second opportunity. And Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, because God, praise the Lord, is the God of second chances. He's really the God of the millionth chance, but for our purposes, he's the God of second chances. And and just the word Deuteronomy, if we were to break the word down, um, in the English anyway, uh, deuter, that prefix deuter, uh, or deutero, means second, right? Like we get the word deuce, or dual, or dos in Espanol, right? So there's that second aspect, and anomie, is the law of something, right? Maybe you like to study astronomy. It's the law of or the study of astral things. Or economy, it's the law of the eco or the environment. So it's the second giving of the law. That's what the word means. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 18 and Acts chapter 7. Get those two in one in each hand, right? Deuteronomy 18 and then Acts 7. Deuteronomy 18 and Acts 7. And our prayer is that learning the books of the Bible would start to give us that panorama of how God is dealing and moving, not only teach you the Bible, not just about the Bible, but actually teach you the Bible, but also make you a better minister of the Bible, be able to help somebody else with it. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, we see in all these books, Jesus Christ is pictured as something. Because guess who the main character of the Bible is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So everything about what's in here is ultimately going to point you to your Savior. And we've seen different pictures of Jesus Christ in these different books. In the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus Christ is pictured as the prophet like Moses or that prophet. 
And in Deuteronomy 18, we see the promise that that prophet would come, that would succeed Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 18, the Bible says, God speaking through Moses, I will raise them up a prophet, capital P, from among their brethren, so he would be Jewish, like unto thee, meaning Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So the Messiah would be Jewish, the Messiah would be that prophet, capital P, like unto Moses. There's so many parallels between Moses and Jesus Christ. That would be a study for another week and a half or month or a year. All right, now let's go to Acts chapter 7. Let's see that verse fulfilled to give you the cross-reference. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen preaching his one and only sermon that we have recorded in the Bible anyway. In Acts chapter 7, verse 37, um, Stephen is recounting the history of Israel, which must have really stripped their gears because they knew all this in their head, but they didn't know it in their hearts. And so he's going back over all these historical details, and they're just grinding inside. And in 37 he says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. So Jesus Christ is that prophet like unto Moses. And like all of our Bible, there's three ways that we could take the book of Deuteronomy. First way is, historically, it happened to Israel. It's about 40 years after they came out of Egypt. That's where we are now, historically. 40 years after Egypt, now you are staring at the book of Deuteronomy. So there's historical events that are being recorded. Doctrinally, which is what does this book teach us about God? Doctrinally, it's about Israel in the tribulation, at the second coming, and the millennium. Almost everything in the Old Testament somehow comes back to that. Deuteronomy especially points to Israel going through the tribulation, receiving Christ at the second coming, and moving into the millennium. How do I know that? The book is full of curses and blessings. Things that will apply to them in the tribulation and the millennium. It's full of types of Christ, types of antichrist. You know, things of God, things not of God. Wait till we get to Deuteronomy 32. I'm not going to get to it this week. I was very advantageous when we started. I thought I'd get through a book a week, and just some of these books are too dense, and I know I'm doing some low-level flying, and I'm like skirting through a lot of things, but I don't want to go so fast that even I run out of breath, because I could tell you run out of breath just listening to me, but me to like talk that fast is not possible. So we're going to cut this book in half. Inspirationally, spiritually, What does this book say? This book is about you, saint, from the moment you got saved till you get into the promised land. This book is about you, about to enter into all God has for you and what that means. And so it's a great book for us to to think about. Now, on your sheet, uh, I include this on your outline, the book breaks down into three pieces, past, present, and future. From chapters 1 to chapter 4, verse 43, We have a look behind, okay? We have a look at Israel's past up until this point, their failure, uh, etc., right? They're wandering from chapter 444 to chapter 26, which is the biggest section of the book. We have a look around. Moses is talking about where they are now in the present. And from chapters 27 to 34, we have a look ahead. We have a glimpse into Israel's future, where they're going, So the book very neatly is about past, 
present and future of our nation. And I want you to understand how special this book is. It, Jesus Christ quoted Deuteronomy. It was one of the most books he quoted. He quoted Psalms more than anything, but Deuteronomy is pretty high on the list. He quoted Deuteronomy a lot. You know why? Because Deuteronomy is the last thing Moses spoke to the nation before he died. You know the last words of people are very important? Um, we talk about the law of first mention in the Bible. The first time God says something, very important. But there's also a law of last mention in the Bible. And the last time God says something, or the last things God says about something, are also things for you to pay attention. Last words are very, very revealing. These are the last words of Moses to the nation of Israel. Can you sense the drama? He's been with them all these years. He's not going into the promised land. And here's his last discourses to a nation that he was willing to basically give his life for. So it's very special to God. It should be very special to you, the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, last words in general should captivate you. I mean, I quoted this a few months ago. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. Great servant of God, great soldier of the cross. We read about his last words in that telegram he sent to that conference. His last words were, others. Wow, others. That's like, those last words are powerful. He might have said others a lot of other times in his life, but his last words revealed something about what your life of service should be. It should be for others. And he reminded them with his last words. How about William Tyndale? Right, William Tyndale, whose blood is soaked in that Bible that you have, who gave his life to get that Bible out of the dead languages of Latin and Greek and Hebrew and into English so that we could have it today. You know what his last words were when they tied him to the stake and they were burning him alive? He prayed, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And you know what? God heard those last words and a king named James of Scotland, finally would authorize your King James Bible for us to have today. Last words are really important. So there's like a sacred aspect to the book of Deuteronomy. Even though it gets dry at times, I'll confess that to you, but it's supposed to be something special. So I'm not going to go through every chapter now because there's so much stuff that you could read on your own. But what I want to do is I want to hit some of the big pictures in the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm only going to get through chapters 1 to 17, and I'm not going to hit every chapter, but I'm going to hit the highlights. Let's go to Deuteronomy 1, and let's jump into some preaching and some teaching out of the book of Deuteronomy, not only to titillate your mind, but also to aim for your soul and your heart, which is where I need to be spoken to. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you're taking notes, here is our first picture, our first truth that the Lord really impresses upon us in the book of Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 1. It's the picture of the wandering Christian. The wandering Christian. Look at Deuteronomy 1. Take it from verse 1. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. There are 11 days journey from Horeb, that's Sinai, by the way, by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the 40th year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. Can you please notice that the book starts, brethren, by pointing out 
that this was supposed to be an 11-day journey that took 40 years, right? Now, the Jews had to go into the wilderness, and you and I have to go into the wilderness. If you've been delivered by the blood of the Lamb, say amen, right? If you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and you've come out of Egypt, you have to go into the wilderness. That's what this world is supposed to be, a wilderness on our way to the promised land. But you don't have to wander. You don't have to waste your time. You do have to sojourn in the wilderness, but you don't have to waste your time like the children of Israel wasted their times and a whole generation wasted their lives and never saw what God was going to give them. Keep reading. Doesn't that sting you? That stings me. How much wasted time have I wasted? And that's where God starts the book by pointing out the wandering Christian, the Christian that could get so much from God and just waste so much of his life. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Look at this. Look what the Lord says. On this side, Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law, saying, here he goes, ready? The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb. Again, Horeb is Sinai. Right? That's where he came down and spoke to them, saying, watch this. You have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and unto all the places nigh thereunto in the plain and the hills and in the vale and in the south and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give unto them and to their seed after them. Oh man, God is saying... Guys, get up. Go get all that I've got for you to get. You've been hanging out here too long. You're wandering. You're wasting your life. I've got all this promised land for you. Go get it. How many Christians waste their lives wandering and never growing? Just sitting around, going to church sometimes, reading the Bible sometimes, praying sometimes, going up and down and up and down and in church and out of church and do a little God and back off God. And God's like, what are you doing? Go get all that I've got for you, man. I look at this room, I see so much potential. I encourage you, go get all God has for you. Don't be content to just sit around at Sinai. Go get something that God has for you. Go to Hebrews chapter five. That's the first message of the book. That's a pretty strong message of the book. Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter 5. I remember reading those verses and the Lord just shaking me up, just saying, Pat, you better get out there and get out there in New Jersey. You better get off your butt and go do something. How long? He's like, you dwelt long enough at Sinai. Go possess all that I've got for you. And uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 12, is a great verse that really follows along this line. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, he's saying, you guys should have been a lot more grown up than you are. You should be able to teach the Bible. Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as need of milk and not strong, not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, do you see that word? Use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Are you out there in the wilderness 
exercising, using the things that God has given you to get victories in your family, to get victories in your personal life, to get victories in your community, to go get what God has for you, or are you just making excuses? So many Christians make excuses instead of exercising. God says, you're just a baby. You should be here, and you're still here sucking on the bottle. You should be out there teaching other people, and you're still getting nursed. It's time to put your big boy pants on and go get what God has for you. Look at 1 Peter 2. I know that was a tough, it's a tough point right out of the gate. I know, but that's where the, that's where the book of Deuteronomy starts. It starts like this. What are you guys doing? Don't be like your fathers. They were idiots. 1 Peter 2 is another one. 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 2. A familiar verse. I know. But watch something here. 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It doesn't say you're always supposed to be a baby. It means you're supposed to have the same desire as a baby. But you're not supposed to stay a baby. You're not supposed to be still sitting around like a baby. God says, don't stay a baby. Take the milk of the word that you may what? What does it say? That you may grow. The Bible's trying to grow you up and mature you so you can go fight those giants and go conquer those valleys and go get that promised land that God has for you. Man, it's cute when you wheel around the 20-month-old. It ain't cute when you wheel around the 20-year-old. That's weird. If I had a 20-year-old in a carriage, that would be kind of weird. And it's cute when you're a 20-month-old Christian and you make mistakes and we help you up with your skin knees. But if you've been saved 20 years and you're still a baby when it comes to the Word of God, that's embarrassing. That's like, you, it's time to like all of us, myself and my, myself, myself, right? The English teacher, me, myself, and I, right? But it's time for myself included to aspire to mature, to aspire to grow in grace and knowledge. How many times does God command us, grow in grace, grow thereby, grow up, that you may grow up into Him in all things. God wants His people to grow. And now if you've been saved five years or less, you get a pass. If you've been saved five years or more, I hope the Holy Spirit gives you a swift kick in the pants like He's kicking me right now because He's like, Grow up, son. Grow up. Stop being a baby and go get what God has for you. Amen? That's the first lesson. God comes right out of the gate. Moses comes right out of the gate and hits us with a lesson. Don't waste your life like your fathers did. Don't waste your life like the other knuckleheads did. You go get. Don't make excuses. Well, they messed up. I can mess up too. No, you go get all God has for you. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is aiming for. Now go back to Deuteronomy and let's jump all the way to chapter 4. I like that opening. Didn't expect that. Deuteronomy 4. We talked about the wandering Christian. Now let's talk about the worshiping Christian. What type of worship does God want us to have? How do we adore Him? How do we approach Him? How do we worship Him? Look at Deuteronomy 4. Pick it up in verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time. Again, this is a look back. They're still thinking of their past. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. 
lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth, and lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations, under the whole heaven. Can I please point out to you in verses 14 to 20? The Lord warns Israel against worshiping anything they can see. That's what the world does. They worship what they can see. Even in a church building, right? They'll have their statues, they'll have their icons, they'll have their images, they'll have their stuff. God says, you don't pick up those habits. If you see verse number 14, 15, he says, Ye saw no manner of similitude on the day the Lord spake unto you in Horeb. He says, when I saved you, you didn't see a bird. You didn't see a beast. What does John chapter 4 tell us? God is a what? God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't need any paraphernalia to help us worship God. We don't need any objects or icons to worship God. We don't need the trees or the beasts or anything that the pagan cults have to worship God. God says, you worship me in your heart through the spirit. That's how true worship happens. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, the first generation was commanded not to worship anything they could see. In fact, it's the third commandment. Now, if you grew up Catholic like me, you didn't think this was the third commandment because they took this commandment out of the Bible and split the tenth one. That's how the Roman Catholic Church got around the third commandment because you have a hard time with the third commandment in the Roman Catholic Church or any church really that's dead orthodoxy because they've got their statues and their images. But Exodus 20 verse 4 says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. So the first generation was told, don't bring anything you can see into your worship. Now, if I'm Father McGillicuddy, I got a tough time with that verse. Because that verse points a pretty accusing finger at most of the things that we used to worship with in the old church, right? You needed the statue, you kissed the crucifix, you, you walked around, you know, the box and saw it shining. They held up the monstrance, which sounds like monster. That's where Jesus lived and that little thing they held up. And all these objects you could see were part of worship. And the third commandment says, I don't want you to worship anything that you could see or touch or make with your hands. So you know what they did? They took that commandment out, and they took the 10th commandment, they split it in half. So if you learn the commandments like a Catholic kid, like I did, you didn't learn that as the third commandment. You learned the 10th commandment split in two, and that's how they filled in the 10. Awfully sneaky, don't you think? <laughs> I do say, my dear man, awfully sneaky, awfully underhanded. It's pretty clear right there, don't do it. You say, why did God do that? Because that's protection for Israel in the tribulation. That's protection against the Antichrist who's going to erect an image that the whole world is going to have to worship, but those faithful Jews that are following their Ten Commandments are going to go, 
I can't bow down to that image, Nebuchadnezzar. I can't bow down to that image, Antichrist. I've been commanded not to worship anything made with hands. You see how God is wise? But in Exodus 32, you could flip over there. Exodus 32, the first generation, they were commanded not to do it, but they were corrupted pretty easy. It ain't too long in Exodus 32. The preacher left for a little while, and everybody went crazy, right? When the cat was away, Aaron and the mice played. Exodus 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, Pastor Dean preached a great message years ago when there's a delay. And, you know, when there's a delay and you don't see God doing something, that's where we all get ourselves in trouble. They delayed to come down out of the mount. The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up! Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron, and he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, Right? graven images after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Man, they got corrupted. So when you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it wasn't just corruption. They weren't just bowing down to that calf. There was a whole lot of other pretty wicked stuff going on in association with that pagan worship. So when you go back to Deuteronomy 4, now the second generation's got a chance to not make the mistakes of their fathers. So God repeats, don't worship what you can see. Don't get caught up in what you can see. Because I'm going to tell you something, guys. There's something in the sinful heart of man that is drawn to what you can see. I don't care how spiritual you are. You walk into St. Patrick's. You walk into St. Peter's. You feel your flesh just go, you know, you know, you just walk in and something like starts drawing you. I I mean, I watched it. I walked into St. Peter's in Rome and everybody is like just hypnotized by marble and stone and plaster. There's something in man that is just drawn to wanting to, you know, bow down to things that they could see and touch and that they made themselves. And God says, do everything in your power to resist that. Worship in the Spirit. So in verses 15 and 16, he tells you, he cautions the second generation. You say, what can we learn about that? Well, he cautions you too, Christian. You want to see some parallels? Look at verse number 16. See the end of 16? Uh, 4.16? He says, uh, Don't make anything the likeness of male or female. You know what? There should be no statues of people in your worship. We don't have statues. Statues of this one, statues of that one, even statues of Jesus. No, none of that stuff. Get all that stuff out. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Look what he says in the end of verse 17. Or the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air. I don't need a dove or the picture of a dove to think about the Holy Spirit. I'm not putting a picture of the dove up in the church so we could all look at the dove and bow down to it. I'm not talking about on your t-shirt. I'm talking about being involved in worship, right? I don't need anything like that. Look, it goes on, verse number 18. The end of 18. Don't make any the likeness of any fish, Right? No Jesus fish. <laughs> the Jesus fish, it's a, it's a cute emblem for some things, but it's really not a, the fish. You know who worshiped the fish? 
The enemies of Israel worshipped the fish. The Dagon was the fish god in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Dagon, the fish god, was a Philistine god that God made fun of and mocked. So we don't need a fish or a Jesus fish to show people that we're Christians. We're supposed to show them that we're Christians by our good works. Let them, uh, what does it say, uh, Matthew 5, 16? Uh, let them glorify your Father because of the works they, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Can I get even more uncomfortable? You know, we don't pay any homage to some so-called star of David, okay? Even Eli knows that, the star. We put it on the track because it's on the flag and it attracts people. We're trying to catch people with guile. But we're under no misunderstanding. You know what that star is, right? That's a pagan star. In Acts chapter 7, verse 43, it's called the star of your god, Remphin, Figures which he made to worship them. You know when Israel adopted a six-pointed star to worship? They adopted a six-pointed star when they fell into idolatry. I mean, do you know anything about your God? Anything at all? You think your God would have you worship a six-pointed star with six triangles that surround a hexagon, which is a six-sided figure? Six, six, six is all over that object. God's like, that's nothing I came up with. That stuff straight from the devil, man. Now, Israel adopted it, and I know you see it a lot, but we don't pay some special homage to it. Go to Deuteronomy 21. Let me make it even, let me get even more unpopular now. Deuteronomy 21. Hey, I just got to tell you the truth. You could do with it what you want. All right? Deuteronomy 21, look at verse 22. Let's hit the grand poobah. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. <clears throat> and if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. You know what else we don't need in our worship? We don't need any crosses. I don't need you to be looking up at a cross behind me or coming in and like, oh, look at the cross. You know, you know what the cross is in Galatians chapter 3? It's a curse. Now, the power of the cross we recognize, the power of the cross we preach, but I don't need the object to ward away any evil spirits or kind of draw your attention to something like that. It shouldn't be something you worship because it's a curse. Listen, they say that my father smoking cigarettes for 50 years killed my dad. If cigarettes helped kill my dad, I'm not going to take a pack and bow down to a pack to honor my father, am I? And if Jesus Christ died in an electric chair, you wouldn't stick an electric chair at the front of church and be like, you know, you know catch one of these when you saw the electric chair. Right? Now, I'm not talking about putting it on your T-shirt or on a gospel track. I'm not getting that crazy. I'm talking about it getting a part of your worship where your heart is getting joined to it and you think there's some kind of spiritual mojo in it. There is no mojo. It's a piece of metal or glass or wood or stone. And if it helps you remind you of something, rather tuck a Bible verse in your heart if you need to be reminded about Jesus Christ. Now, go to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11. Let me tell you about real worship, real worship, right? Now, you could take that to an extreme, 
and say, like, you know, I'm not going to shun somebody walking around with cross earrings on. Like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Or, like, we hand out gospel tracts that have crosses on them. All right? Let's not get crazy. You understand what I'm saying. He said, watch out that that stuff doesn't get mixed into your worship. Right? And in Deuteronomy 11:16, the Lord shows you what worship is a part of. He says, take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. You see, your worship comes from your heart. It's a spiritual exercise. So you've got to watch your heart. Because Jesus told that lady, Remember the lady, the lady of Samaria, the woman of Samaria? She's like, do we worship here? Are we supposed to worship there? They say in this mountain we're supposed to be worshiped, and you guys say he's supposed to be worshiped down there at the, you know, uh, the temple. And Jesus tells her, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. I think it's great that God puts us in a plain room, a plain auditorium with no accoutrements, with no frills. And we grew up, most of us from Staten Island, in a converted warehouse with nothing fancy. They made it look really nice, but it's just a big box that they tried to clean up and put some carpet in. Why? Because God says, you know where worship happens? In your heart. You cultivate your heart. And that's a heart of worship. We got brethren worshiping in caves. We got brethren worshiping in houseboats. We got brethren worshiping uh, in the middle of a field. We got brethren in Mexico worshiping in parks. You think God cares about the place or the way it looks? Absolutely not. My God says, I want some true worshipers. I want some people that love me in the heart and the spirit and according to the truth. Let's keep going here. All right, let's go to chapters 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy. So we've talked about the... What have I talked about? Help me out here. The uh, wandering Christian, uh, the worshiping Christian, and then Deuteronomy 5 to 6 is really the wise Christian. The wise Christian. And I'm going to point out something in Deuteronomy 5. We're going to start jumping around here. Look at verse 29 of Deuteronomy 5. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Lord actually gives the Ten Commandments again. He actually gives the law again, like the, the Ten Commandments. And then he gets to verse 29. And you want to hear God's heart? You want to hear it? It's right here. Oh, that there was such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them, because keeping God's law helps you, not him, it helps you, and with their children forever. If you're wise today, you're not just trying to get something for yourself from God. You're thinking of your kids. You're thinking of your grandkids. You're thinking of your nieces. You're thinking of your nephews. You're thinking of people that have come after you that you could somehow leave them a legacy. And God says, I'd like you to really embrace my word in your heart so that not only you get better, but that you can leave a legacy for your children who would know God as well. Look at uh, chapter 6. God gives the law again, and He's longing to not only bless you, but bless your children, our children. Not just our individual children. I know we could directly apply it to, like, my kids or your kids if you have them. But even, like, our church kids, even the kids that are, like, under our care here as part of our ministry and our church family, we should be looking out for them and pass something on to them. And in chapter 6, the Lord really lays it on us all. Look at verse 4. 
6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee... I don't I want to stop at nine. I want to stop at nine. Sorry. So, at the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. Do you see God challenging Israel to leave their children... A godly heritage. You see verses 4 to 6? You know what God does? He says in verse 6, I want these words to be in your heart. You realize that's where it's got to start, right? That God's words have to first be precious to you. You can't give somebody what you don't have. You can't expect your children or your Sunday school kids to think much of the Bible if you don't think much of the Bible. You can only put the show on for so long on a Sunday morning, but when they start watching you, they're going to see whether or not that Bible is a big deal to you, whether it actually affects the decisions that you make in your life. My kids are always watching me. They call me out all the time. They're like, Daddy, what about this verse? You know, They're good like that. They need to hold me accountable because I'm an idiot. right? They're not just watching the show you put on on Sunday. They're watching your lives, gang. They want to see, is that book real? If it's precious to you, it'll be precious to somebody else. It'll be precious to your grandkids. It'll be precious to your nieces. You may not see the fruit of it, but they're going to say, Grandpa really taught something of that Bible. Mommy really taught something of that Bible. They may curse you and reject you and say, I want nothing to do with it. But when the stuff hits the fan, they're going to know, Mom, Dad, Aunt, Uncle, Grandpa, Grandma, that Bible changed their life. It always seemed to help them, and they'll, come, they'll know. So it's got to be precious to you first. And then look at God's progression. You see what in verse 7 what he says next? It's precious to you. And you know what he wants you to do with it? Teach them. Don't just treasure it. Now teach them. Teach God's words to your children. Have a Bible time at night. Open the Bible with your wife. Open the Bible with your husband. Open the Bible with your kids. Open the Bible with your little ones, man. Spend some time, even if it's just reading a story out of it when they're little or talking about it as they get older. Don't let them go to sleep without opening the Bible up at least once a day and try to get something in the man. Teach it. And then the end of verse 7, teach them. And then it says, talk of them. Talk about it. Talk about it when you're playing. Talk about it when you're working. Talk about it when you're traveling. Look for connections that you could draw parallels. We, uh, we, were, uh, we were in Staten Island a little bit yesterday. And um, I don't know if you heard this, but in Tottenville, there was this really bad car accident. Three teenage, I think three teenagers died. It was really sad. A uh, car was going like 100 miles an hour, hit an SUV, spun around, hit a pole. It was going so fast it split the Mustang in half. And I'm sure some of those kids died on site, on impact. Uh, one of the, my brother-in-law knew one of the cops that was there. He says they think the car was going like 100 miles an hour down Highland Boulevard. And it's really sad. And, and I just turned to my kids, and we were just saying, we were saying how sad it was. And the Lord impressed the thought on my heart. And I had to just say it. I say, you know, as horrible as it is, their problems just began when they died. 
right? We got to get that perspective. I think it's terrible. I think it's tragic. I weep for that family. It's sad. I don't make light of losing that. It is probably the most awful thing I can imagine. But as a Christian, I've got to soberly, and I wanted to talk about it with my kids. And at first it was like, ooh, but I'm like, no, we got to think spiritually, right? When they hit that pole, we sit here on this side of, the, of, the, of life and say, oh, that's the most horrible thing in the world. And God says, don't you know if they're not saved, they woke up in hell? Spinning out of control. We think, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then they smack a pole and then they wake up in a devil's hell. That's horrible. That's how you talk about things, man. You talk about things. You just find ways to connect life to it, man. Make the Bible a household discussion. It shouldn't be just sitting on the coffee table. Look at verse 8 and 9. You know what he says there? He says, write them upon the posts of thy house. Put some verses up in your house. Maybe put some verses of something spiritual up in your kids' rooms instead of posters of people getting overpaid for singing a song or throwing a ball in a ring somewhere, right? You know, it's really dangerous. You know, you put these idols up, and they're idols. Actors, movie stars, musicians, and we put these posters up. I had them as a kid. I don't want that in my house. I don't let my kids put that stuff in their house. And I'm not a great parent. I'm just saying, I know that much. I'm not going to have them salivating to some guy dunking a ball or like, you know, singing a song. No, put a Bible verse there. So they look at that every night. That's what he's saying there. Don't put your idols up. Put some scriptures up. And then he says in verse 20, look what he says in verse 20. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, you see, you see that? See that train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old? He'll ask you in time to come. What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Right? Hey, Dad. It's okay. Hey, Dad, how come the Bible is such a big deal? Hey, Mom, how come the Bible is such a big deal? How come the Bible is such a big deal, Grandpa? Hey, Grandma, how come you always read that Bible? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He hath commanded us. You see, He's saying, guys, if you do these things, they're going to be watching you. And one day they're going to say, hey, what's the big deal about that book? And you can sit there and testify and tell them all the great things God did for you. You say, you know why, son? You know why I read this Bible? Because Jesus Christ saved my soul from hell. I'm a wretched, filthy individual who doesn't deserve two seconds of your attention, let alone God's attention. And God died on the cross to deliver me, and He gave me a book to save my life. And that's why we read it, son, so we can get all God has for us. So it would be for our good always. And if we continue in this, it'll be our righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God says, testify. I'm not going to flip there, but Psalm 127 says... Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. You know, who's, you know who your kids belong to? God. Are you leaving them God? Or just good policy, 
nice house, money, be comfortable for the rest of your life, and you didn't leave them God when they were God's legacy? They're supposed to be God's heritage, and you didn't leave them a godly heritage? You know what I'm afraid of? That God's going to look at me and say, shame on you. Shame on you. i got to leave them God. Now, Deuteronomy 7 is just something I want to mention here. Look at Deuteronomy 7. I'm just going to touch this, and I see it. I don't fully understand it, but I see it. But Deuteronomy 7, look at verse 9. The Lord, uh, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Huh. Thousand generations. When does that happen? Let's keep reading. Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16. Look at verse 15. First Chronicles 16:15. You with me? Say amen if you're there. Amen. Thank you, because I wasn't. That was a way to stall. First Chronicles 16:15. Be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Huh. Okay, let's go to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Psalms 105. Psalms 105. And let's take it from verse 7. Psalms 105, verse number 7. Psalm 105, verse 7. He is the Lord our God. Can I get an amen there? (laughs) His judgments are in all the earth. That's millennium. That's clearly millennium. When His judgments are in the earth. Next verse. A little tricky. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. There's a period of time that's yet to happen, which is sometimes referred to as the age of ages. What Clarence Larkin, if you read any Larkin, he calls it the perfect age. A time that God is going to keep this promise to Israel for a thousand generations. And it can't quite be eternity, because there's no time in eternity. So, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says that there are ages yet to come. So, we're talking about a time where there's going to be a thousand generations that God is keeping some kind of a covenant for the nation of Israel. Which makes us wonder... Where could this period of time be when God fulfills this promise to Israel for a thousand generations? That's a long time. There's no time in eternity. But a thousand generations? You know, a generation in the Bible could be anywhere on the low end, 33 years, anywhere on the high end, 120 years. That means we're talking about a period of time that could be at least... 33,000 years, or at the high end, 120,000 years. So it's a chunk of time that God has got to put and fulfill this promise that He would keep this covenant with Israel for a thousand generations. 
And the place where it really fits the best, it looks like he's going to fulfill this promise after the millennium and before eternity. Again, it's a little foggy. I know it's not, uh, there's not a lot on it, but it looks like this age of ages, and it's not really taught today because nobody knows anything about the Bible today, but the old boys used to talk about this age of ages that would come after Revelation 21 and before Revelation 22. I don't know if it's going to roll into eternity. I, I don't know if it's an extension of the millennium. Give all your questions to somebody else about that. But it seems like God has got a time reserved, yet undefined, when he will fulfill this thousand generations to Israel. You see, you say, where do you get that from? Well, if we follow the patterns of the Bible, it's a little clearer. For example, at the beginning of your Bible, there is an undefined period of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We don't know how long it is, but it's there. So if God is consistent, at the end of your Bible, it looks like there is very likely an undefined period of time also between Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Now, I'm not going to fight you if you don't see that, but it looks to me like there's something going on there that I just wanted to give you some food for thought. Back to some things in Deuteronomy 8, all right? Just go back to Deuteronomy 8. That was like a little aside I wanted to, it was hard to get through Deuteronomy and not mention that at least. Um, Deuteronomy 8, I'm hurrying along here. I'm going to make it. Chapters 8 to 9 give us another picture or truth for us to take information from. Deuteronomy 8 and 9 is about manna in the wilderness. And manna in the wilderness is about the nourished Christian. The Christian who is fed up, not fed up, but nourished up on the word of God and ready for the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Does that sound familiar? Anybody recognize who quoted that? Your Savior, Jesus Christ, quoted that verse when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. So man is a big deal. It's something you need in the wilderness. Even Jesus Christ admitted needing the word of God in the wilderness. As a man, you need it in the wilderness. Doctrinally, doctrinally, you know that manna is coming back. You know, in the tribulation, Israel is going to again be fed with manna in the wilderness. You know that, right? Well, if you didn't, now you do. Right? Spiritually, it's a reminder that if you're in the wilderness, guess what? You need to be nourished up in that book. That's what's going to get you ready for the promised land. That's a good lesson. Let's go to chapters 10 to 12. All right, chapters 10 to 12 are about the blessed Christian, or they picture the blessed Christian, because chapters 10 to 12 are about millennial blessings and curses. Let's look at 1122 to 23. 1122 to 23. See it now, 11, 22 to 23. For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to cleave unto Him, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Again, historically, that's for the nation of Israel. 
it happened in the wilderness. God says, you keep my word, you're going to get into the promised land and be good to go. It happened in Israel's past. That's historical. What's the other way we read the Bible? Doctrinal, right? Doctrinally, it's about Israel and the future. That Jew in the tribulation, if he keeps the commandments of God, if he follows what God says, guess what? He will inherit that land and enter into a, a blessed time called the millennium. It's future. But what about the present? For the present, that's the spiritual reading. That's the inspirational reading. Because guess what? The blessings or curses in your life are going to depend on whether you keep God's words or not. It's that simple. You have a choice. Contrary to what some of our brethren who call themselves reformed like to say, you have a choice. It's always about a choice, brethren. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's about a choice. The cherubim had a choice, the angels had a choice, and every man and every time period that God orchestrated always has a choice. You could choose God's way and God, or choose your own way and Satan. And you could choose to listen to God as best you can and be blessed, or you could choose to say some things my Sicilian grandparents would say, which I won't repeat, and face God's judgment. It's that simple. I wish it was more complicated. I wish it was about dynamic tension and cultural nuances and all these things that you like to make up excuses, the way I was raised and this and that. Hey, Jonathan was raised by Saul, okay? And he was a man that loved God and loved God's man. There's no excuse. Wherever you are, right where you are, you could choose to obey God the best you know or you could choose to ignore God the best you know and you could choose to be blessed or you could choose to be cursed. The choice is yours. Isn't freedom great? Freedom's a wonderful thing. Go to chapter 13. Continue right on. Now we get to the approved Christian because in chapter 13... We talk about how do we deal with false prophets? How do we deal with false prophets? It's interesting, it shows up in chapter 13, that number of rebellion. And uh, look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 13. If there arise among you a prophet, or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, Whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. See, there's a lot of voices out there trying to seduce you, trying to draw you away from God. And sometimes they look like they're right. Sometimes the miracle happens. Sometimes, you know, the, the prediction comes true, Nostradamus. Hey, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And God will sometimes let some of these seducers into your life to see if they're able to draw you away from God. That's what he's saying right there. So what do you do? Verse 3, verse 3. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you. He's testing you to see if you're approved. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He's saying, guys, God let these errors exist to prove if you love God or not. God ain't playing. God's wise, man. If God only gave you truth and he didn't let there be some error that existed, how would he know if you really love the truth? 1 Corinthians 11 puts it this way. There must be also heresies among you 
that they which are approved may be manifest. God left some fleas around to see who really wants to get clean. He left some error. Why does he let there be false prophets? Why does he let false prophets have radio stations and big ministries and do all these great things? Why does God let that happen? Do you ever think about that? Why does God let uh, the Mormon church have so much money they don't know what to do with? Why does God seem to uh, enable, or not enable, but allow the Jehovah's Witnesses to have so much money to print all these resources? Why does God let all these churches get taken over by these reformed theologies and get turned upside down? Why does it look like he's letting it spread? So he could separate the sheep from the goats. So the people that really love his word will rise to the top and all the other posers will go with with the chaff. What is the chaff to the wheat, God says. And I'm telling you guys, God ain't playing. God doesn't care about numbers. God says, I just need me a few good men and I'll turn the world upside down. God is looking for people that love that Bible so much that no error would shake them out of it. No matter what you show me, tell me, or that list of verses you got off that YouTube video you watched, I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to crack it open. And if I have to crack you with it, I will. Because the Bible is the truth. And he says right there, what does he say? Study to show thyself approved. You want to be approved that you don't get taken in with the latest fad? Study your Bible. You want to be approved so you rise to the top and God could trust you with more truth? Study your Bible. You want to be kept from error? Study your Bible. I wish I could scream it. Study your Bible. Learn the Bible. Do discipleship. Come to Bible study. All right, do those things, right? Because the Bible is the truth and God is looking for the people that love my word and that would cleave to the sword. He's looking for some real warriors that would cleave to the sword. In verse number four, he tells you how to survive all these seducing spirits. He says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey him. His voice, and you shall serve him and cleave unto him. You know what he says? He says, if you cleave to this book, you're going to know what voices to avoid and what voices to follow. We talked about it on Sunday. Do you know his voice? Do you know his voice? Do you know his voice? You got to get so close that you can hear his voice, right? This Bible should be the most precious thing in the world to you. More precious than gold, yea, above fine gold, David said. And that's how you'll be kept from the knuckleheads that say, oh, do you know the doctrines of grace? Or, oh, did you get the second wit? Did you get the burning in your bosom? Or, oh, would you like to hear about Jehovah's kingdom? I'd say, yeah, I'm a Jehovah's witness. (laughs) I'll tell you all about them, right? So you, you get the truth, and the truth will make you free. Go to chapter 14, Deuteronomy 14. I just got a few stops left here. I'm hurrying. 14 is about the giving Christian. Because chapter 14 is about tithing. It's about giving to the Lord. Look at 14.22. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. God says, hey, if I've prospered you, you should give something to me. That makes sense, right? The Bible says that in the New Testament. As every man, as he hath prospered you, give me a little bit just to you know, bless me a little bit. That's what the Bible says. That's the principle right there. In the Old Testament, it was a tithe. It was 10%. That's 
We don't teach tithing. The Bible talks about giving. You give what you want to give to God, right? Grace giving. But God says there's the principle. If he's prospered you, give something to me. But see, verse happens in 24, jump to 24. The people of God got their excuses. And if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. He says, I want you to bring that tithe to where I am. But you know what happens? God's people always make excuses for not giving. Oh, it's too much. It's too far. It's too this. It's too that. Okay, okay. Just read verse 25. <laughs> then shalt thou turn it. So you got that thing from your field, right? That flock or that, uh, or that, that crop. And he says, you know what? You don't want to give it to me? Okay. Turn it into money and bind up the money in thine hand and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose thee. He says, if you don't want to give it to God, keep your money. I don't want it anyway. Bind it in your hand and just get to stepping. That's what he said. Come to the promised land and hold on to the money like the miser that you are. Do whatever you want. God says, I don't need your money. If you don't want to bless me, keep it. Nobody's wrestling it. I think I've talked about money once in my life from the pulpit. This might be the only time, right? And if you look at verse 23, look at the Lord says. 23, And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thine oil, and the firstlings of thy herds, and of thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. The tithe is for their growth. Not God's growth. You think God gets better because you brought him a sheep or some corn or some mint or 20 bucks or 10,000 bucks? You think God is somehow like, wow, now I really exist. Now I'm really real. I'm glowing. They're going to really see me now. No, it teaches you to trust God. It teaches you to fear God. It teaches you to know God. He says, hey, that tithe is for you guys. That's what giving is about. Chapter 15. Chapter 15, I'm just going to hit you, and I'm, all I'm going to say is it's the year of release. It's the year of release. The year of release is a picture of the millennium. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, I got, I'm going to do these two stops super fast. Chapter 16 are the three feasts. And the, the three feasts that every male had to go up for. And those three feasts point to the three parts of the resurrection. The three parts of the harvest. You want to see it? Deuteronomy 16, 16. Ready? Three times in the year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. In the feast of unleavened bread, that's one. And in the feast of weeks, that's two. And in the feast of tabernacles, that's three. You say, what's one? What's the first part of the, of the harvest? The feast of unleavened bread points to the Old Testament saints that came up already. That's the first part. Then the Feast of Weeks, that's the church age saints, that's Pentecost, that's the Jew and the Gentile, one offering to God. That was a big one. You know what came at the end of the year? The Feast of Tabernacles, that was the Tribulation saints. You got your three raptures right there, your three parts of the resurrection right there, Old Testament saints, church age saints, Tribulation saints. You want to see it again? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll show it to you again in the New Testament. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection. And these three feasts point to the order of the resurrection. 
everything in the Bible is there for a reason. 1 Corinthians 15, take it from verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Watch it now. For as in Adam all die, amen, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. He says, hey guys, there's an order to this thing called the resurrection. You want the first part? Christ, the first fruits. There's the first fruits. There's the Old Testament saints that come up with Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about it, right? Afterward, they that are Christ's at His coming. There's the rapture where the church age saints come up. There's the feast of weeks right there. There is the Jew and the Gentile, one body being offered up to God. There it is in 1 Thessalonians 4. We love to read about it. And then he says, then cometh the end. There's your Feast of Tabernacles at the end, right? It comes at the end, and those are the gleanings. Those are the tribulation saints. Revelation 11 talks about them. So the Bible lays out the order of the resurrection there. And finally, we'll finish in Deuteronomy 17. Just a few verses here, and we're just going to read them and make a comment and be done. I said I do half the book, and there's 34 chapters, and I got to chapter 17, which is where I wanted to land. So that's good. Last thing. I want to leave you with the prudent Christian, the sensible Christian, the the one that foresees the foolishness and makes the right choice. Because chapter 17 deals with how do you handle an abomination in the camp? How do you deal with wrongdoing when it enters the camp? Let's just read verses 1 to 6. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is a blemish, wherein is blemish, or any ill fa- evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, And behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. He's saying there in verses 1 to 6, when you hear about wrongdoing, what do you do? Let's bring it down to the church. When you hear about wrongdoing in the church, what do you do? He says right there in verse 6, you never react based on rumor. You never react because one person told you something over coffee. You never react and take action because somebody's tail-bearing or they're a gossip hound or they just run their mouth too much. He says, you go inquire and you make sure you get yourself some witnesses and make sure that thing is really going on and then you deal with it. That is the prudent Christian. Yes, things will enter our assembly. They've already entered our assembly where they've had to be dealt with. People that have had to been asked to leave. People that have been asked not to come back. Those things get dealt with. But they don't get dealt with on a whim. They don't get dealt with on a rumor. 
They don't get dealt with on hearsay. They don't get dealt with because one witness said something. No, you got to do the painstaking, often very uncomfortable work of going to people and asking them and getting the whole story. Why? So you make a sound judgment. Never react based on rumor or hearsay. You're a fool. If you answer a matter before you hear it, the Bible says it's folly and shame unto you. And if you're going to be a prudent Christian, make sure you keep your mouth closed and inquire and make sure you get yourself established before you act on what you think is an abomination in the camp. Amen? So that's the first half. If you thought the first half was rough, the second half gets a little bit rougher. So Lord willing, next week, we will get into the second half and finish the book of Deuteronomy, a book to help you on to the promised land. Let's have a word of prayer. Father.